0: Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast. Now even your kids can get vaccinated. While Canada continues to vaccinate other parts of the world, go into another wave. And have we learned anything from George Floyd's murder one year later? It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML.
1: I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Uh-huh. Now kids 12 plus can get a COVID-19 uh-huh. Uh-huh. vaccine. Uh-huh. Does that mean my grade eight graduation is a go? No Nope. what? It's the Scott Thompson Home show here's. Scott
0: Thompson. There you go. It is uh, 1210, it's 900 CHML, I'm Scott Thompson, Uh, Willers, come back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes, jump into the fun on this hot sticky day, we would love to hear from you, Uh, lots of ways to do that, Uh, you can uh, send us a note via the website, Thompson at 900chml.com, another jam-packed show coming up today, and uh, you know, not a lot of COVID news, which is great, I mean, we'll cover uh, some updates in the top uh, uh, first hour or so, but other than that, uh, and and the reason... Reason is uh, slowly we are uh, more and more becoming vaccinated. Uh, cases today sitting at 1691, which is the lowest we've seen in a long time. That's the new cases and uh, Moderna uh, being okayed for kids 12 plus. Uh, some of the big news today and of course the big debate is uh, who gets it first. Do we give adults the second shot or we do move? Uh, do we move on to the kids and uh, get them all the way down to? Uh, say, 12 years old, 12 to 17 anyway, should they be done before... Uh, others get their second shot. That's the debate that uh, we're having right now. All right, let's bring in uh, Tina Trigiani here. Her report uh, in regard to the second dose in AstraZeneca.
2: About
3: 100,000 people received their first shot of the AstraZeneca vaccine mid-March, and they are now eligible to book the second, just days after the province announced it was looking to use up remaining doses. 55,000 will expire a week from today. Now, some people have already started reaching out to the pharmacy or doctor's office where they got that first dose, but not having much luck. There's no online booking portal available. So I guess I'm in limbo right now. Toronto pharmacist Cairo Massa says participating locations don't know how many vials they are receiving just yet. That could make administration tough to sort out. The announcement was made great. Everyone's happy. Details are not being provided
0: in a timely manner, in my opinion.
3: Vaccines were collected over the weekend. They're undergoing quality assurance and will be redistributed later today, possibly tomorrow, to select pharmacies in Toronto, Kingston and Windsor which were part of the initial rollout of the drug. Tina Twerjani, Global News.
0: And that is the uh, chatter right now. That's the debate uh, as we see the uh, the eligibility rate lower down to 12 plus is uh, when do you vaccinate uh, other people, adults, with their uh, second dose? At what point does that happen? Uh, obviously, uh, the Prime Minister saying today Canada third in the G20 as far as getting uh, citizens with that first shot. Uh, however, we're still sitting at about 4% for, uh, the second dose, which, uh, obviously puts, uh, puts us quite a ways back down the list if you count the, uh, the second dose. However, uh, they're saying by the end of June, we could see 20% with the second dose and 50% with the second dose by, uh, July and August. What does that all mean? Let's bring in Thomas 10 professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University, and is with us now. Thanks for the time, Thomas. I hope you're doing well.
2: Uh, yes. We're very well, thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me on again.
0: So your thoughts, first of all, let's start with the big news. Moderna uh, now okaying uh, it's one hundred percent effective in teens age twelve to seventeen. Any surprises here? This now makes moderna and Pfizer uh, available.
2: Yeah, yeah it's it's good news. Uh, I, it's not unexpected. I you know I was uh, expecting that moderna would follow suit after Pfizer and so so I think that's good news overall because you know the numbers of uh, cases in the under 19s uh, are still very high in comparison to to the other age groups
0: any concerns at all with giving this to someone who's 12 13 14
2: yeah it it's it's definitely one of those uh, issues where where i think it's it's you know a combination of of the you know what the, the parents and and what the parents perspective are is on uh, on vaccinations uh but but overall from a safety perspective the uh the evidence is that it's uh you know it's as safe as the as it is for for you know people over 18 so so from a safety perspective i don't have a uh concern from that perspective but but i you know i would say that uh you know it's definitely something that uh with with kids you you know it, it has to be a it's uh you know role of the parents there in in deciding what they feel is best for their kids but, but you know taking on board all the evidence
0: so uh, the big question now thomas becomes uh, when do we start or you know i mean obviously we've started in in some hot spot areas of uh, vaccinating those 12 plus already um but at what point do we push the kids ahead of those with receiving their second dose you know adults even older adults
2: mm. yeah it, it is an interesting uh situation to be in like definitely for, for people who have had their first dose we really want to make sure that they get their second dose within the within the time window it's a pretty wide time window uh but but we still really you know want to ensure that they get it you know by the end of that time window what's what you know i think they're, they're talking the you know four months now or um so 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 i think you know we have to sort of balance that with uh you know the fact that We have, uh, the numbers of cases for under 19s, including the school age kids, uh, is still higher than numbers of cases in 60 pluses. So, so we've got people in 60 plus who are, who are vaccinated, but we've got, you know, sort of a lot of the, you know, 19, younger than 19 who aren't vaccinated and we have more cases in that age group. So, so from my perspective, I would say, I would, I would sort of put some focus on, on, uh, vaccinating the people who aren't vaccinated who who don't have their first dose who who we're seeing those those uh, cases in
0: have we lost you
1: thomas
2: no i'm i'm here
0: oh sorry you just dropped out there for a bit
2: it yep, um, okay.
0: is um uh, with with the the second dose and the first dose and the time between those two uh obviously with the the Astra or sorry the uh the Pfizer and the Moderna it's 21 and 28 days i believe uh with the AstraZeneca i think they said if you wait 10 to 12 weeks it's actually better is that accurate mm-hmm. uh so you know obviously those with the AstraZeneca can or uh, well supposed to wait 10 to 12 weeks cuz that's when it's at mm-hmm. it's uh of effectiveness uh but w- how about the the other uh vaccines does do we know how much they tail off after that 28 days
2: yeah it, it is an it's an interesting one because you know in, initially the you know and the from the from the approval perspective you're you're correct that the the approval is for you know 21 days or 28 days depending on which which of those two uh, for the second dose, but, but, you know, we're, we're seeing that people aren't getting, you know, haven't been able to get that in that time frame and, and they have been, uh, having a, you know, a broader time window. And so the question is, you know, what, how, how effective is it, is it going over the, uh, over that initial approved period? And, and from, from what I, from what I understand, there, there is evidence that, that, that you know, that up, up to the, you know, the four month mark is, is, is is fine but once you once you get over that there's there's some questions but but again it's you know the evidence is still coming in on on all of that but but definitely you know the second dose and making sure that the second dose is, is uh delivered in, in a timely manner is is very important
0: um the prime minister is saying Canada third in the G20 to get a uh, percentage of its citizens with the first dose obviously Canada is more aggressively uh, I think that anyone uh, spacing out between first and second dose, four uh, percent, when you count those that have had uh, both doses. However, they're saying by the end of June, twenty percent, and fifty percent by July and August. Do you see that as a realistic goal? Uh,
2: yeah, de- definitely. I think it's it's achievable if if you know we have the two 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 things happening. One is that we continue to have the you know. Ongoing supply of, of vaccines, as well as we we have people uh, who are still wanting to get their second dose uh, based on you know experiences with the first dose, and I think those two two factors will you know come come together to you know will see how you know what what percentage that we can we can achieve over the next uh, you know uh, month or so, but but definitely I think is achievable if if everyone who's had their first dose uh, you know are willing and, and able and wanting to get their second dose and that we have that that supply coming in as well
0: it certainly appears at this point thomas that the uptake is pretty is pretty huge people are still wanting this the the demand is still outstripping supply at this point
2: yeah yeah def- definitely it's uh you know what what i think is you know driving that is is just people sort of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel with with the, with the pandemic but also yeah. seeing the benefits of of being vaccinated and, and the the, uh, the benefits in regard to you know lifting of restrictions and, and, and easing up of of things that are you know sort of lock, lockdown measures. I, I think people are saying, yeah, you know, let's we'll we'll get this vaccine so you know we can uh, start to get our life back on track.
0: So where where do you think we will see uh, Canada and the United States? say, um at the end of this year, for example, because uh, obviously we saw what happened with the U.S. in, in, in dire straits at the beginning and, and all of that and the hoax and what have you, and then all of a sudden, boom, vaccine production kicks in and um the U.S. is vac- uh, vaccinating like there's no tomorrow, lots of supply. Now, obviously, it's slowed down. People are quite hesitant. Uh, the percentage of Canadians with their first dose has now exceeded those in America. We're over 50 percent. The U.S. is still hovering under 50 uh, percent with that first dose. However, I think with the second dose, it's up to about 40 percent. Canada's is uh, sitting at 4 uh, percent. With these numbers that we're expecting by, say, June, July, August, we could be in pretty good shape as far as, you know, if we've got by the end of uh, July or so 50 percent with the second dose, and it looks like 70 uh, percent Uptake. I mean, what is your predicting? Uh, what is your prediction at the end of all of this, as far as what the uptake will be by the end of the year?
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, if if we can sort of reach those sorts of targets, uh, you know, I think that uh, from a re- easing of restrictions, you'll you'll definitely see see the restrictions eased ease quite a bit. Uh, but but I think you know one of the things to keep in mind is that you know when the e- restrictions are easing you still need to keep uh, vaccinating that the proportion of the population haven't been vaccinated Mm -hmm. and and that's going to be in some ways tougher because people will say well oh well things are easing why why do I need it anymore you know so so it's, it's a bit of a you get in that sort of situation where there's the incentive for people to be vaccinated starts to ease off and because if if the restrictions are easing and so so that that's going to be a challenge but uh we definitely need to keep trying to uh you know increase the uh overall second dose uh, percentage as much as possible
0: how concerned are you thomas with a fourth wave maybe not so much in canada because we are now aggressively buying into the vaccine like you said it's just a case of keeping that supply up to hit those summer goals uh, but we certainly know what India has been through in the last several weeks and and what they 've had to deal with and now we're hearing reports out of Japan that they're in a in a dire situation. How do you explain those countries seemingly going backwards at this point in the pandemic
2: yeah it, it it's it's uh, it's really interesting you know and and I know that you know from our perspective we're we're very focused on what's happening here and and in north in north america but but if you think about the pandemic on a on a worldwide scale, you know, there's a lot of countries in, in really dire straits and and you know, India particularly, but, but as you said, you know, we're seeing uh you know, new waves uh coming through in other countries. Uh you know, the reasons for that, you know, are going to be, you know, combinations of of uh you know, vaccination coverage as well as uh, you know, sort of the Social distancing and, and other you know, prevention measures being, being eased off, and combination with maybe new, new variants and, and the like. So, so there's a you know, in a lot of ways, you know, the factors that we've seen that that have that have driven our, our sort of series of waves uh, are, are going to keep going because you know it's uh, it's just uh, it's sort of like the laws of physics. Is, you know, you, we know what we need to do to control this. Uh, it's just whether or not we're able to do it in a, in a timely way to be able to to uh, control it effectively to to stop you know you know further waves.
0: So obviously we saw the U.S. take off and then they've sort of hit a hesitancy you know point here where they've they've slowed down drastically. Uh, how concerned are you with uh, variants in the United States if you know they're kind of stopping at about fifty percent?
2: Mm. yeah yeah definitely you know what i you know what I'm seeing there you know they're really opening up uh, a lot of a lot of uh, sporting activities and a whole range of things there and so it's sort of like you know life back to normal for a lot of people and, yeah. and uh you know with with the uh, at that sort of percentage you know you you you're going to have a a a large number or a large proportion of of community transmission still and it's going to be hard to to really get it under control, so, so, so definitely, uh, you know that's something that we've, you know, even though, you know, restrictions will start to ease and and people will really be, uh, be looking forward to that, we, we've still got to uh, look at how do we uh, keep maintaining restrictions to us, you know, balancing the restrictions versus the proportion of uh, vaccinated people, so that we can make sure that we have a. The uh, you know that the so-called herd immunity and and a you know, sufficient number of people vaccinated so that uh, the the risk of transmission is is as low as possible.
0: Uh, last question on the bar, uh, the border and the opening of the border between the United States and and Canada. Obviously, we remember what that was like at the beginning of this. Then it sort of flipped, and and we had a, a worse time than the U.S um now how will we come out of this what will be the benchmark on both for both countries to open them up
2: yeah it's going to be going to be interesting because you wouldn't like to think that there'd be different you know standards you know depending on which way you're going yeah uh, you'd like to think that they'd, they'd be consistent so uh i i it's i'm really not sure you know i think you know the the you know international international travel is still going to be reasonably restricted for, for quite some period of time and, uh, and, and definitely, you know, both from a land border and a, an a air travel perspective. So, so I think, uh, you know, we just have to sort of keep, keep holding fast to, to what we're doing and, uh, you know, I think we can see that the light's, light's at the end of the tunnel.
0: Boy, we certainly can. It seems uh, that's uh, been evident in just the last couple of weeks. Thomas Kate with us, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University. As always, Thomas, thanks for the time. Be well.
2: Thanks very much, Scott. Have a great day.
4: You're listening to The
0: Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Japanese government has been quick to deny a US warning for Americans to avoid traveling to Japan would have an impact on Olympians wanting to compete in the postponed Tokyo Games. US officials cited a surge in coronavirus cases in Japan caused by virus variants that may even be risks
2: to vaccinated people. They didn't ban Americans from visiting Japan, but the warnings could affect insurance rates and whether Olympic athletes and other participants decide to join
0: the Games that begin July 23. I'm Charles Villadesma. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, uh, health policy expert. He is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. Lots to talk about today, but let's uh, let's start from farther out and then come in. Japan, we've certainly seen what India has gone through. And as I mentioned in the preamble, uh, you know, Canada kind of late to the vaccination game. Now we're seeing things happen and and, and uh, Canada move along. Um, so is it surprising to see these little hotspot outbreaks happen in other parts of the world like this? How concerned are you of these? I am concerned. I mean
5: what's happening in Japan just to, to clarify this further is that their health system is currently under a lot of stress. Uh, and basically the doctors in Japan have voiced and the healthcare professionals have voiced major protests, the Japanese government asking them to delay the Olympics because they've been working over 120 hours. And so some insane number of hours have been worked by healthcare providers. Their health system is currently uh, very, very strained. Uh, and there have a massive concern about the influx of athletes and spectators to the Japanese uh, Olympic Games. And so there has been a call for that. the u s has released the Center for Disease Control, has said that advise all people to not travel to Japan. It's not a ban. However, it's an advisory. And with such an advisory, Scott, what ends up happening is that insurance rates for traveling gets higher. So people who wanted to go to Japan now all of a sudden are faced with a problem with insurance companies telling them that because of this advisory, they're going to charge them a higher premium. And there's also a big issue about the return time of test dates. So right now it's about three days to get your test results back. The U.S. is concerned that that time is not enough for them to get as many people out there and back safely. So I think there is a number of concerns that comes with Japan. But this is just an indication for all of us here in Canada. What I've said on your show many times before that... As long as there is one country out there in the world that does not have access to vaccines, that haven't been vaccinated, uh, that haven't vaccinated populations in large numbers, and that there are active numbers of COVID 19 cases. No country in the world is safe, and the Japan, Japan, and the Olympics is the perfect example of that right now.
0: You know, we were talking about India a few weeks ago when when their situation started, and in, in asking how can the world's what's considered to be the world's pharmacy, who you know makes so much of the of the vaccine, uh, can find itself in such a situation and then again you know a reminder if you uh drop the protocol too soon if you get a little locks when it, when it comes to gatherings that sort of thing uh and, and again maybe hesitancy around the vaccination uh itself we saw what happened with india Wh- what's the situation with japan why are we seeing a spike there now
5: well the reason in japan is that their vaccination rates are dangerously low so the number of people that are vaccinated in Japan is exceptionally, exceptionally low. Um, and so that's part of the problem. But they've also had the closer, uh, you know, uh, gatherings of individuals. But primarily for them, it's really been around the vaccination rates. They haven't been doing very well. They're trying to expand their uh, how many people get vaccinated now, which hasn't worked out well for them. They try to increase the age by the time the Olympics start. They would be looking at expanding the age group for them. And so the point there is that they just, you know, they they just only on Monday opened their first mass vaccination centers. It's a little bit too late from when the Olympics start. As of today, Mm -hmm. only 2% of Japan's entire population has been vaccinated. You can't be hosting one of the biggest events in history, you know, uh, expecting thousands of people come when your vaccination rates are just not high enough. Uh, It puts a risk on the country itself. And that's what the healthcare professionals there are talking about, Scott. They're saying, listen, we don't have enough people vaccinated. We can't handle more people coming into our country at this point
0: and i think at this point uh international travel is banned i don't believe there is going to be uh spectators at this point but i'm not sure what it's like domestically for them i think that might still be allowed um so with with japan you said like two percent and in india's wasn't it was around the same uh uh, around the same number not too long ago is it for japan hesitancy or supply is it a supply issue like canada or is it hesitancy I think it's a combination of multiple factors. I mean,
5: in Japan specifically, it looks like part of the reason is, A, supply, and B, the way they've actually planned out their vaccination. So, for eligibility, distribution centers, uh, mass vaccination centers, that's part of the distribution plan or the rollout plan of the vaccine is very different in Japan. However, in India, India is a big country, a, a gigantic population size, and difficulty in outreach. So... Uh, getting the vaccines to people in rural areas of India has been a big struggle and the healthcare system's ability to actually provide vaccine to a mass number of people. Uh, so context matters. You know, where you live and the way the country and the infrastructure of the health system is set up really is playing a big factor. That's not a problem for us, for example, in Canada or the U.S., where our health systems are able to sort of do this mass vaccination. And we were seeing it right now in Ontario with more than 50 percent of the population being vaccinated, of uh, adults, that, that's partly because we have the system to be able to do that. Online bookings is an option for us here. Yeah. That's not the same in other countries. And think, I think now it's, it's very interesting from my end that we're seeing that everybody has a, a front row seat to understanding global health, Scott. We really are getting to see what it means to have countries uh, with different healthcare systems. And we're hearing about it in the news and we're, we're all learning about how that affects uh, their approach to COVID-19 response.
0: Yeah, that's a valid point. Um, So as you, and again, this is hard to predict, but who are you concerned about moving forward? Uh, Obviously, India's had issues, Japan having issues now. Uh, who who are you concerned about or what part of the world? Obviously, Africa's got to be a major concern. Uh, but what, wh- where do you see the next sort of hot spot or, or, or something that raises a red flag for you? Uh, for example, would it be the United States who had a great uh, uptick at the beginning, but now they're kind of hesitant, you know, and getting past that 50% mark for for people uh, getting the jab? Wh- who are you concerned about sitting out here now?
5: I mean, just to clarify, there are parts of Africa, there are countries within Africa that are doing remarkable jobs. So I'm just very Mm -hmm. simple to say the continent of Africa is not doing well. Uh, I will reiterate, though, you bring up an excellent point, Scott. I will reiterate the WHO general director's uh, comment this morning, which he said exactly something that I've said on your show before. As long as there are countries around the world, any country in the world that has a number of COVID-19 cases and no access to vaccine, no country is safe. And actually, the WHO put out a, a statement that was quite stark and they said this is a scandalous inequity in vaccine distribution and i think that's very very telling and this is why there's been a strong push on canada to donate more of covax to give more vaccines away um because we're doing better with our vaccination rates countries have actually quite frankly been very selfish in who they give the vaccines to they've wanted to keep it for its citizens which i understand to a certain extent but then had no idea or intention or plans to give it to other countries because you know, for some reason, our government leaders, whether it's in Canada or abroad, have this viewpoint that, you know, we just need to protect our own. And they don't understand that, that the two go in together. You need to protect your own while protecting others because others can impact our own. And so this dual uh, policy complex needs to be addressed. And I think countries around the world are waking up to that reality slowly and realizing that we can't open, open our international borders. We can't do import and export affect all aspects of life. If there are countries around the world, it's an infectious disease and it transcends borders, period. Uh, and so mm. the sooner we arrive to that reality and we put plans, concrete plans to make sure that every country around the world has access to the vaccine and has access to distribution of the vaccine, Scott. So when you ask me about which country I'm worried about, I'll tell you I'll, I'm worried about any country who not only not have access to supply, but also don't have the health system in place to be able to distribute that vaccine. Yeah. I can give you millions of vaccines, But if you're not able to give it out to to your population, that's a problem.
0: Uh, You brought up borders and such. Uh, Obviously, the U.S.-Canadian border closed until June 21st. How do you arrive at a criteria to open the border? Uh, do, do, Do both countries have to have X number vaccinated, X number of second shots? How would you, because again, now you're... Uh, you you know, you're having people going to and fro. Obviously, you need the same sort of standards, don't you, on both sides of the border?
5: I'm going to say something that's a bit, uh, you know, on the discussion point here. I don't believe the U.S. is doing as well as it's been projected. And quite frankly, Scott, I think what's going to happen with the border control is that we might open it up uh, slightly. But I suspect, given the data and the numbers are coming out of the U.S. and the hesitancy rate. I suspect that the U.S. will go through another wave of a massive surge of COVID-19 mm. around September. And so, and I suspect that we're going to, if we open our borders, we're going to close them back very quickly. The way the U.S. is doing right now, when you look at the data of hospitals intake, they're seeing a surge in the number of patients of COVID-19 who have not been vaccinated. Um, and that number is only escalating by the day. There is a, still a massive population of people in the U.S. Who are not getting vaccinated and do not wish to get vaccinated because they have the supply, they have the ability to get people vaccinated. There is a large number. Uh, I don't have the exact here, but it's close to 50% of the population not willing to get vaccinated in the U.S. Yeah, that ends up. That what happening there is that they're going to have a massive, you know, collapse of their healthcare system once again, where they have an influx of patients who need the uh, treatment.
0: So you're concerned that they have stalled after they, you know, went into warp speed with vaccination and such uh, that it's just, it's, 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 the interest there is waning now.
5: Correct. And we see that from the rates, right? That that we see that over the number of weeks that have passed, uh, less and less people are getting vaccinated. And that indicates to us vaccine hesitancy, not the same case in Ontario in Canada overall, our, uh, our rates are higher. Uh, We more and more people in Canada are getting vaccinated, partly because, Canadians tend to value science more than Americans overall. Uh, And I think it could also be the fact that we've been in a lockdown for much longer than the U.S. I mean, the parts of the country, especially Ontario, has been under the strict lockdown for so long. It's almost served as a wake-up call for us. Like, If you were debating whether to get the vaccine or not, I I wonder if if the lockdown really played a factor in people saying, well, I'm just going to get the vaccine because I want to be out of this lockdown. That can't be said about the U.S. There were some cities in the U.S. that had strict measures, but there were a lot of parts in the U.S. where it did not have the same lockdown measures we had here in Canada, the strict ones.
0: Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, All right, so uh, today's news, obviously, Moderna uh, okayed for uh, kids 12 plus. That's both uh, Pfizer and Moderna. Uh, now given the uh, green light to uh, to start jabbing the kids, and I guess in the hot spots that has already uh, began uh, has begun. Uh, your thoughts, because now the question becomes, because supply is still a concern, although more and more is coming in, uh, do we hit the adults with the second shot, or do we prioritize keep going down to 12 plus?
5: I believe that the government's probably really looking closely at whether to give people the second shot as soon as possible, because... We don't want to delay that too long. And also we know from the evidence that two shots give us the better sort of immunity, right? And we need to look at people who want to travel. And so there's multiple factors that are involved with actually getting people two shots. This week, we're getting about 600 doses of the Pfizer vaccine, which should help this whole idea of second doses. However, now with the idea of expanding eligibility to anyone over the age of 12, I think the two can go hand in hand. I think we need to start, you know, definitely vaccinating uh, uh, children over the age of 12 because we want to reopen schools. And so part of the reason why there's been a push for trying to see if we can vaccinate our younger population is because there is a big, big push for schools to to reopen. And one way to make sure that schools can safely reopen is for us to vaccinate our children. And so, uh, you know, now I tell you, I work in academia and the big conversation in academia right now is, it's one thing that our professors and our teachers and our staff are vaccinated, but our students are not. So is it really safe to open up? Because, you know, I might be standing at the front of a lecture hall or a classroom far away from my students, but my students are sitting next to each other. And yeah. so there is this big debate now. And I think that's part of the push to expand the eligibility to over 12. However, I think that there is also a big, big push to make sure people get their second dose as soon as possible.
0: Uh, My guess is by September, things will be relatively normal for students, both in university and and in high school and elementary school. Uh, That being said, do you think there's any chance of them going back before the end of this year for like the last week or two?
5: Hard to say at this point, Scott. I mean, I agree with you. I think that the majority of people will be vaccinated, including our children, by September. Can we reopen earlier? hard to tell at this point it all gonna kind of depends on the supply and the rates that we can vaccinate i mean we haven't even looked about how many children actually want to get vaccinated yeah uh, that's another big topic that we will have to see we wait and see because you know we can expand the eligibility but if they're not going out there to get the vaccine what are we doing wrong so let's hope that's not the case uh and that you know when we do expand the eligibility people can get the vaccine in that age group they're all going out there to get that vaccine
0: all right. By fall, Ahmad, most of us are supposed to be vaccinated with two doses. At what point do scientists say, all right, that's wearing off. Now we've got to line up and do it again.
5: Uh, well, I think that, you know, we're, we're doing really, really well. I mean, when you look at how we're doing overall, especially in Ontario with the number of people vaccinated, the case numbers in the hospitals, we're seeing a decrease in those ICU units. Uh, and so I think that by fall, we should see life resume back to normal Uh, as long as I just want to be very clear as long as we keep a close eye on the rest of the world Uh, as long as our borders are open we will always continuously have surges in numbers and so but however with two doses and everybody being vaccinated uh, with the two doses we're going to have a very strong immunity towards the COVID-19 so we suspect a bright future ahead to be honest
0: so uh, and now my point is doctor is that now you get everybody vaccinated is it a year later it all wears off and we start again or will we not know that for another six eight months
5: we will not know that only because of the variants they're 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 throwing a curveball and so variants are you know test us in different ways however what the scientists seem to believe is that if the majority of the population is vaccinated you're giving very little chance for the vaccine for the sorry for the virus to play games uh, to and by play games i mean create variants that you know trick the vaccine system let me put it simply and so the idea here is that if, and that's the concern actually scott with the us because that they're not going to be able to achieve that mass large number of vaccinations they might present with variants that we we don't expect. You know, will will not be able to respond to vaccine well, and might need a booster shot. And currently, Pfizer, Moderna, and other vaccine manufacturers are looking into that option. Like, do we need to alter this? Is this going to become like the flu vaccine, where every yeah. year you get a you know a different variant of the of the virus, of the vaccine to, to to cater for the variants that are existing for that year. Uh, but I think in Canada, if, if we stay the way we are, we increase the number of vaccinations, we might actually be doing quite well, where like, COVID-19 becomes just like the flu, where next year we look at the case numbers in anticipation of that. We vaccinate our most vulnerable populations uh, with a booster shot, uh, and then we, we move on from that. Time will only have to tell us what, what the way forward is.
0: Hmm, still lots to learn. Dr. Ahmad Khalid with his health policy expert, uh, talking about all the news today, including, uh, 12 plus and other parts of the world still experiencing hot spots. Doctor, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Oh, here is today's daily commentary. COVID-19 has affected all of our lives in many ways. There has been no stone left unturned by this conditional love respect, support, and encouragement. My brother-in-law's father passed away. He was one of those people who left an impression on all he met. When speaking to him, you were the only one in the room. I remember a past funeral where a minister said, it's not about the dead, but for the living. To stop, pause, and take note of where we are in life and learn from those who have left us. John Jack Caulflesch was one of those who taught us a lot in life, and even more so after his passing. Something we can all learn from during this global pandemic. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hard to believe it has been a year since uh, the murder of uh, George Floyd and that video nine minutes and 29 seconds, which uh, everybody saw around the world and uh, has greatly uh, changed the discussion. Uh, Are we seeing a difference? I guess time will tell uh, as far as that goes, but certainly uh, one year later, even one year later, uh, George Floyd's name, everybody knows who he is and what he stands for and what this movement has uh, become. Going to play you a clip from NDP leader Jagmeet Singh on this day and the Prime Minister's reaction.
1: When thousands of people took to the street demanding that something happen, we saw Justin Trudeau go to a Black Lives Matter protest and take a knee, which seems to be all for show because a year later, and there still has not been any concrete action to deal with systemic racism in policing in Canada. And and I want to really emphasize this point. The material conditions for Indigenous or Black or racialized people has not changed. Their experiences when it comes to the police has not changed. Really, what Justin Trudeau did, taking that knee was all for show. This is the prime minister of Canada who could clearly take action when it comes to immediately banning racial profiling at the federal level, whether it is ensuring clearly that there's a review of force or making sure if someone's dealing with a healthcare crisis, they don't have armed police officers showing up at their front doors issuing aggressive voice commands, but a healthcare worker that deals with people in a healthcare crisis. These are changes that could have been done. Justin Trudeau could have done them. But a year later, after that horrible incident spurred so much positive action and activism, demanding for justice, demanding that this end, Justin Trudeau has failed to do that. And I want to note that that, that is wrong. There needs to be action. The loss of life cannot be in vain. It should result in changes and systemic changes to prevent this from ever happening again.
0: All right. That is NDP leader Jugmeet Singh commenting on the year anniversary of Uh, the passing of george floyd the murder of george floyd and uh obviously the movement that it has created let's bring in reggie giacchini washington correspondent for global news he is with us now reggie thanks for the time hope you're doing well good afternoon I remember when we were chatting about this uh, a year ago and, and the impact that that video made, those nine minutes and 29 seconds uh, and such, many felt that, wow, you know, th- 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 this is going to change things. But again, we've said the same thing after mass shootings and such regarding gun control uh, and such. So here we are a year later. Is the United States a different place today? Reggie?
3: Well, look, I mean, it is and it isn't. Uh, it is in the fact that there has been an ongoing and an extended conversation when it comes to police reform in this country. Uh, and in that it, you know, is going through, uh, you know, yet another racial reckoning, not the first because this is a situation that has played out time and time again in this country. For the last number of decades. But the fact that we are seeing a more involved political process, albeit on the slower side, and we are seeing uh, a greater conversation at the federal, at the state, at the local, at the individual level, I think that uh, that you are seeing a country that is understanding that things need to change. And there is uh, still a definite impatience uh, on the fact that that change is not happening fast enough.
0: Are all states aggressively pursuing this equally or some more than others?
3: Well, I mean, look, we there are more than two dozen, if not three dozen states that have already at, worked to put some kind of legislation or reform bill in place. There's actually more than 250 bills that have been passed across the country uh, to try and either deal with the reallocation of resources within police forces, whether it has to do with putting uh, an enhanced focus Uh, On mental health. Uh, But there are still some states that are being uh, strong holdouts to any kind of systemic change within the police force. Just earlier today, the governor of Texas signed a law that would ban any kind of defunding uh, of the police. And we have to remember defunding of the police doesn't mean uh, taking a police force to a net zero, It, it is wording that's meant to say. Uh, the reallocation of funding uh, to take a budget that can, in some cases, be in you know the hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, uh, and take that and put it into different aspects of policing, uh, potentially like community policing. Some states are pushing back on that. Some states are embracing that. At the national level, it's stalling because Republicans are getting in the way of a bill that was put forward uh, by the president when he was a candidate, and he was trying to get accomplished by today.
0: Uh, it seems like with anything, you're you know it's either one extreme or the other. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, we heard lots of chants of defund the police, defund the police. Uh, so obviously, you get an opposite reaction where people are signing bills saying, "Well, we'll, we'll never do that," um, and, and instead, we the conversation is somewhere in the middle about real allocation of funds and and where. You know, uh, departments need to, to focus in order to, to address these systemic issues. Whenever you say the word systemic, it usually means it's deep. It's interwoven. It is ingrained in that system. How difficult is this to change? I mean, you know, uh, at one time it was racial equality and hiring more and more minor- minorities in these services, but that doesn't even seem to have helped.
3: No, it doesn't. And I, I think you're right. Systemic means that it is far deeper than the surface. And I think that's where you're seeing some pushback right now from activists by saying that what police forces are doing, what politicians are doing right now is only skimming, uh, the surface of these problems that really have existed for decades and trying to cover that up by saying, well, look, we're being more diverse in our hiring. That's not getting to the root cause that while there are, uh, you know, minorities in the police force, uh, that there are still, you know, quote unquote bad apples. Uh, in the police force that can really taint uh, the image and the good work and the goodwill that is put forth uh, by the number of police who are trying to do something for. Uh, for the greater good. And, and, and there are members of the community that are also simply cautiously optimistic at what they're seeing, because again, it has to do with systemic problems. There are people that are of an older generation that are out marching uh, for people like George Floyd, for people like Breonna Taylor. And at the same yeah. time, they were marching in the 1980s and the 1970s and the 1960s. Uh, so they've been rallying for change. That change is slow because uh, the, the roots of the problem run so deep, you will find politicians, namely in the Republican Party, like the former president, uh, who would decry it and say, look, there is no racism in police forces. But at the same time, you have police captains actively coming out saying, look, it's a problem and we're trying to deal with it. But you can't just do that in a snap.
0: You talked about various generations who are involved in this protest. You know, we were playing Marvin Gaye's What's Going On to Start This, which, you know, was historically a song back in the day uh, of him singing of the same sort of uh, inequality and such. Um, Are we actually seeing discussions... Of how things can change. Are we seeing discussions? Certainly not necessarily of defund, but here's what we need to do to address this. Cause it's very bizarre. You know, uh, especially here in Canada, you know, we're, we're asking police to do more and more and more. We need someone who's, you know, can specialize in mental illness. We need someone who can specialize in cyber uh, attacks. We need someone who can specialize in, in terrorism type things. Um, so again, are we, are we asking them to do more and more and more and more, yet taking the resources away for them to, to, to do it? How do you find the balance here?
3: I think that's a good question, and I think that's where you see some of the kind of strong support for the, quote-unquote, defunding of police, where you can say, look, you can have your hundreds of millions of dollars to be able to tackle the big things that police need to be dealing with, uh, like fraud, like murder, like, like serious crime. Uh, but then they're also calling for funding to be reallocated to say, look, maybe we need to have, you know, X number of police officers and then we need to have X number of mental health workers to be able to come in and assist with the de-escalation process. Because we've seen time and time again in the United States, especially a situation that may have its ties to uh, mental health. Uh, an officer comes in and, and the situation is de-escalated because, uh, you know, shots end up being fired. We've seen this before, and that's where some of that push-pull is on how do we take care of ensuring that our police officers are doing what they need to do, but they're also not being tasked with doing something that could be handled uh, by somebody else. That is why we're seeing some of these local bills and some of these state bills tackle de-escalation training uh, to potentially give a police officer a different way of thinking, if not uh, completely bringing somebody new in. It's a it's a big conversation, Scott. This is something that, again, it's not just George Floyd that sparked this. This has been something that the country has been dealing with uh, for decades, uh, and it's just simply been brought back into the light over the last year. Uh, and I think it's going to be something that that's going to continue. Uh, to be discussed, especially as we see more and more of these bills being passed
0: what about the significance of this video because again we we're talking about how you know this has been happening for years for decades I mean this is this is a big issue. Uh, yet it was this nine-minute and 29-second video that seemed to change everything. Uh, We're seeing the discussion in Canada about, uh, you know, police wearing body cams and and, and this sort of thing, and and that's been debated, uh, you know, for the last decade or so. This is nothing new. This technology is nothing new. Why did this video change things this time?
3: I think the question is, you know, what would have happened if this video hadn't been taken. Uh, w- mm. What would happen if the world wasn't able to see those final breaths being taken uh, by George Floyd? Would there have been, uh, would, would the outcry have been as, as loud? Would there have been uh, the breadth and the speed of legislation to try and deal with police reform like we have seen uh, over the last year? But I also think it's why we're seeing more and more people take their phones out uh, and try to uh, hold police accountable for the situations that they find themselves in look body cameras down in the united states uh there are hundreds of police forces that require them but there are investigations that are done at the local level by media sources uh that show that the vast majority of the time body cameras are not being turned on properly or they're not mm. being turned on at all uh and you know it goes to the broader question of do police need to be retrained uh because they understand that there's a situation now where their own camera is putting their own actions uh, under scrutiny. And if that doesn't happen, there are going to be other cameras that are going to catch things. They might not catch the beginning, they might not catch the end. I think that's why you're seeing such a broad push here to ensure that body cameras are on at all time, because it gives police officers an opportunity to hold their video up against somebody else's video. Uh, on, with with the George Floyd situation, we saw a body camera video matched basically what was being seen uh, from the sidewalk. Yeah. So you are hearing people that, that laud the efforts uh, of the public for stepping in uh, and recording this
0: so does this eliminate the debate around police wearing body cameras i mean because you know i guess cost and storage and all of that is still an issue but i mean again this was a, a debate that the canadians have been having for a while d- d- does what happened here does it eliminate that debate i mean you know it's obvious they need it it's to protect both people both parties so is this is this debate done just have them
3: I think you're still going to find the debate uh for, for people wearing body cameras uh when it comes to police. Uh you know, the evidence still suggests that uh they, they 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 play a role uh in the protection of society, they play a role when it comes to any potential wrongdoing, but there's also evidence that shows that body cameras on police aren't doing anything to curb excessive use uh of force. But I think that what we can see and what legislators are seeing and what cities are seeing, city officials are seeing when it comes to police, uh, is the evidence is out there that, you know, excessive use of force that can be caught on a body camera can potentially lead to changes uh, within a police department. Uh, and we saw that play out firsthand in-, in Minneapolis. We saw the body camera footage from Officer Derek Chauvin, former Officer Chauvin, played a significant role in not only his police chief coming out and speaking out against him, uh, which was a, a-, a rarity uh in how these kind of trials play out in the united states but it also led to that officer being convicted so there are arguments that these cameras do make a difference uh and you know it's kind of pushback back on the pushback to wearing them
0: what about the president's view on this biden's view on this what can a president do we remember during the mass shootings uh barack obama feeling helpless and saying the same thing over and over again what can a president do
3: Well, I mean, look, a a president can be, um, you know, a sympathizer in chief. He can offer an emotional shoulder. The the president, uh, when he was a candidate, ran on a a key component of one of his platforms that he would push through legislation uh, to make a a kind of national police reform bill. uh, And that was put through to the House. It has George Floyd's name attached to it. Uh, The House passed it. It's now meeting some struggles in the U.S. Senate because there is political pressure to not pass this. The president himself put a self-imposed deadline of having that bill passed by today, the anniversary of George Floyd's death. Uh, And he's today meeting with the family uh, of George Floyd inside the White House after they were meeting with uh, top lawmakers earlier today. So the president, uh, you know, he doesn't have a heavy hand to be able to sway the Senate to be able to do something. But he does have that ability to reach out to uh, families, reach out to victims and ultimately reach out to voters to say, here's something that I'm trying to do. There are elections coming up. This is the kind of stuff that can be remembered.
0: Uh, Obviously, the one year anniversary of the death of George Floyd, but uh, and obviously uh, many are marking that. But the one good thing that did come out of this is a conviction. Um, How is that being uh, how is that being regarded one year later?
3: Well, I mean, look, it shows that change can happen within, uh, within a police force. That was obviously a moment, uh, that was, uh, you know, you know, all for, for lack of a better word, celebrated, uh, not only across Minneapolis, but right across the United States because it showed that police can be held accountable, uh, for their actions. Uh, and it leaves hope throughout Minneapolis that, you know, additional people who were involved in that death could potentially find themselves in a similar situation we obviously have to wait to see the 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 rest of the officers involved in that uh case they go to trial uh next year there's a sentencing still to come for officer Mm. chauvin later on this summer uh but you know that was kind of what many activists saw as the first step forward to getting some kind of accountability for police by saying that this is a rarity that occurs across the united states With the help of cameras, with the help of body cameras, that conviction uh, led to kind of a moment of freedom for many of the people who felt trapped under uh, uh, under, uh, you know, policing in America that that really has been criticized for having its systemic issues.
0: Reggie Giacchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News. Uh, One year later, after the murder of George Floyd, where is America? And of course, make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You might remember we talked a little bit about the Colonial Pipeline, and it was hacked by hackers, and uh, it obviously stopped uh, operation. I think it was for a few days anyway, and certainly put uh, cities along its uh, path in into uh, a a situation with shortages and such. We didn't talk about it too much up here. Uh, We were talking more about the closure of the Line 5 pipeline, I think, around the same time as all this happened. Uh, But bizarre the way this did happen and how they got out of it. And uh, what about Canada? Are we prone to this type of attack as well? Let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
4: Yes, I am, Scott. Uh, Good to talk with you.
0: All right. Let's talk about the first, the colonial uh, pipeline, and what happened here. What what exactly did stop uh, the uh, flow of oil there?
4: Well, most, uh, just about every business, and university, and hospital, and municipality, and city, and province, and national government, and military have digitized. Um, um, there, there's probably. Some small businesses listening right now, you know, one person, two person, mom and pop stores, who are saying, "What are you talking about? I just do everything with cash, and I don't dispute that." But any organization of any size today, and I don't mean millions of employees, I mean how about ten or twenty um, have digitized? First, simple reason: everybody else is digitized. Uh, CRA, Canada Revenue Agency, you file you file digitally online. The with employee withholding taxes, you have to submit your data. The uh, that can collects from every business uh, every 30, 60, 90 days It's submitted online. Uh, you, we do our banking online. The banks do commercial banking online. Utilities do everything online because um, digital technology is vastly more efficient than paper-based. And I'm old enough to remember being in the bank in the 1970s when we still maintained physical ledgers of paper updated <laughs> with pencils. Now, some people may say that's the good old days. No, it was horrible because once every, uh, I think it was every three months, we had to pull everybody off their jobs for a day at the end of the day, and everybody had to manually calculate, manually calculate the interest in every account, which if you think about it's just idiotic. It's a mindless task. Mm. That's the sort of thing computers are good for, and they're good for many, many other things. So where I'm going with this is just about every business and government agency and nonprofit is digitized. This means they are vulnerable. They're vulnerable because once you're digitized and on the grid, and I now mean the internet grid, not the electronic grid, then smart, clever hackers can figure out ways to penetrate the operating system that is running that company or that organization or that entity. And so and people say, well, why utility company? It's not the question of whether it's the utility company. You go after anybody, any company that has deep pockets. It's mm. Al Capone, his famous line, why do you rob banks? He says, well, that's where the money is. <laughs> you go after and try and hack any organization that has money. Deep pockets, any utility company, any hospital, because lives are at stake, uh, any university, Grades of millions of students are, on and, and are there and unnecessary and necessary for the students to graduate. Government departments. And so, you know, just as a sidebar, Scott, I want to get this point out. I, I, you and I have talked, I don't know, a year or two ago, you know, a robot's going to take over and we're going to have math unemployment, which is one of the arguments for a guaranteed basic income. And I laugh at that idea that, that jobs are going to vanish. You know, they've, we've been saying this for 300 years. Malthus said that the world could only support, I think it was a million people, because we were going to run out of food to feed everybody. And what we've learned is as fast as an industry dies and becomes obsolete, blockbuster video and video stores, we invent 10 more industries that are more complex and need more workers. And now this huge industry has emerged. Cybersecurity. I have friends that are working in cybersecurity consulting companies. Cybersecurity in the government of Canada has become absolutely critical cybersecurity in the universities, I can tell you, has become critical because we're worried about getting what? Hacked. Why? Because then they blackmail us to give us money to unlock the system. And so this data is valuable. People think data is nothing. No. As Jeff Bezos discovered and he became the richest man in the world, richest person in the world, data is really, really valuable. And people will pay really big money to get their data back. And so... To anybody listening, if you aren't protecting your data in any meaningful way, you are you are an accident waiting to happen. I know. So about what
0: happened? What happened with Colonial? How does this stop the flow of oil? Uh, just well, literally because, bringing the system to a halt. The the, well, because, the administration uh, system.
4: Most mechanical. We think of uh, things mechanically. You know, you hit mm. a switch and something physically closes. A a pipe on a switch. Uh, um, you know, a block on, on a pipe. Most, I mean, trains are electronically driven now. Airplanes, I mean, the planes, the sky, if you talk to pilots here in Canada, the, the plane flies itself. They're all automated. Long before trucks and automated cars and autonomous vehicles, the planes have got enormous technology. It's all digitized. It's all electronic. The same with the pipeline. There's nobody walking around with a great big sledgehammer pounding on a bar that shuts a valve. A great, big, you know, a great big you know, great
0: big steering wheel-sized valve, spinning that thing around, right. you know, you shutting know, it or off. Or the
4: man up on the, uh, and I'm saying man, because in the old days, you know, the days of the Titanic, some man up on the bridge. I, I happen mm. to have a friend on the St. Lawrence River, and I go down there, and you see the big shippers, uh, the, you know, Canada Steamship Lines going by, and I went to the locks yesterday on the weekend at Iroquois, which is one of the locks on the St. Lawrence system, and there's nobody steering the boat, The Mm. boat. I mean, yes, there's a captain, and he's looking at all kinds of dials and all kinds of guides and GPS and unbelievable digital technology coming off the satellites and digital technology. But my point is planes, cars, trucks, uh, boats, uh, pipelines, airports, air traffic control, NAVCAN, it's all computerized, it's all digitized and they're running with an operating system of some sort. Windows just happens to be the operating system for, compu- for personal computers that we're all familiar with. Well, every one of these big computers, big technologies, they have their own unique operating systems. Just think of it as Windows, and I'm being very loose now, and some uh, engineers might be cringing hearing me say this, but the operating system is the brains of the hardware. Just like I have a brain in my head, and so do you, Scott, and that enables you to talk to me. Well, my computer has a brain inside that box and it's called Windows. That's the brains that operate the, the hardware. And that's what gets hacked. And so just think, think of these systems as it doesn't matter if it's a pipeline. It doesn't matter yeah. if it's an automobile plant. It doesn't matter if it's the St. Lawrence locks. It, 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 they're all automated now digitally using massive amounts of hardware and software. And it's the software that gets hacked because the software is the brains of the hardware. And, and so if you can get some really smart people... IT types, really smart and cropped, and malevolent, who are willing to break in and seize control, you can cause enormous damage. And of course, you can threaten, blackmail the management of that company saying, you pay us money or we will erase all of your data or we'll erase your operating system and we will really shut down your system. And then you're really up the creek. In that situation, especially if it's essential, think of uh, energy, pipes, oil, gas, that's essential. Think of hospital records and patients in a hospital, that's essential. It's not the industry, it's how bad do the management need the data back up and running almost immediately. And the more urgent it is, the more vulnerable you are to getting hacked.
0: So, uh, with Colonial, what happened? How much did they have to pay to get this operating I've read
4: different stories, and I can tell you, uh, because I know, uh, I've heard stories in Canada of uh, universities being hacked and some companies. And, of course, it's always very hush-hush. Nobody ever wants to, A, admit that they got taken to the cleaners. Two, you don't want to incent them by announcing how much. But I read that it was over $4 million in the Colonial instance. And you know it's a it's a very fast in fast out. Once they take over the operating system, they then reprogram it so that your own programmers can't go in. Some of your listeners may be saying, "Well, where are your programmers?" But once you get past the the barriers, the firewall, once you breach the castle walls—if I can use very old medieval techno uh, uh, language—once you get inside the castle, your guys are running around knocking off the good guys. Now they're not. The hackers are not doing that in a literal sense. They're not physically hitting them or killing them they're disabling the inside guys some slang term is the white hats they're the good guys and you're disabling them and not allowing them to get back in to retake control of the operating system that is governing your whole infrastructure and you know i've heard the odd person say gee whiz that just proves how dangerous computers are let's go back to the good old days yeah we're going to go and count paper checks for all the retired Canadians in Canada and manually issue a check every month and stick it in an envelope? Are you dreaming? You'll never get your check on time. Same So, with payroll.
0: Ian, Ian why, would, uh, why would these... And obviously, you know, the answer is it's sensitive information. They have to get these systems back up and running yeah. immediately. But yeah. what's the guarantee that once you pay them however they pay them, whether it's Bitcoin or what have you, uh, you pay them $4 million that they're going to give you the keys back or they'll give it back in the same condition in which they got it.
4: I've raised the very same question with an IT manager in another university, not my own, uh, who I heard over the grapevine was hacked. And I said, you're dealing with thieves. How do you know they're going to honor? Or there's no th- honor among thieves. How do you know they're going to honor it? And he says, you don't. It's, it's a risk, a second risk. The risk is being taken down. The second risk. Is having is being blackmailed, and so you're you're really I mean they try. I've never been in privy to the negotiations, but I'm I'm guessing that they do set up some kind of sort of safe uh, intermediary third party. I will you know once I've got uh, sure the money has been deposited there, you have another safeguard to to uh, make sure that they set the system back up. But I'm I don't I'm not an IT guy. I'm not an engineer. There are. Uh, prisoner dilemma arguments there, but what it points to, Scott, here's where I want to go on this before we run out of time. Anyone who thinks that we're running out of jobs and running out of, uh, they they don't understand. As our society becomes more complex, we need ever more complex new jobs. If Mm. you had said 10 years ago, risk of cybersecurity, people would have said, oh, you mean the Pentagon. Uh, That's how we thought of cybersecurity. It was uh, uh, James Bond and one government, trying to hack another government and in only 10 years we've realized and we have to spend an aggregate across the society across the economy billions and billions of dollars every uh, company of any size every university every college every university uh, 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 school board hospital and of course uh, government agencies federal provincial municipal i mean the city of ottawa it was reported very widely got taken about, uh, it wasn't exactly the same thing. It was a cyber fraud, but it was done differently through convincing the person that they were the um, they were legit. But it right. doesn't matter whether it's seizing your system or conning you into sending a payment. You've got to spend, companies, organizations, employers have to hire a lot more really smart engineering types, uh, IT types to set up uh, more and more robust cybersecurity defenses. This is one of the major threats of the next one, two, five, 10, 15 years for all organizations. I'm not talking the mom and pop store that's a frame store for with two employees and, you know, and cash flow of 20,000 a year. We're not talking that. We're talking any organization of any size, any bus system, the Toronto transit system, the OC transit system, you know, the city of Ottawa hydro electrical authority, uh, Ontario hydro. Um, uh, power one um, you know it 's not just in the private sector it 's where you 've got large numbers of customers or people that whose data is involved, and the company uh, cannot afford to be out of business and be shut down for any period of time that makes you vulnerable and that means you 've got to be hiring a ton of these engineers of these IT types, these electrical electronics engineers to go in and really, really make your systems as robust as possible. And there's many companies out there that have taken it. They treat it as an afterthought and uh, they don't spend enough. And they, the board of governors, the board of directors does not ask tough questions about what are we doing to protect ourselves? Because, you know, you're talking in the millions and millions of dollars, especially if they do, let's say they worst case scenario, you pay the bribe, and then they still have to kill your system anyways. You're talking millions and millions yeah. of dollars and person-years to rebuild your system. So this is not trivial. This is not some trivial um, uh, issue, and it's not something that just affects one company in one state in the United States. Any modern, sophisticated society where they're using uh, you know huge amounts of IT, which, of course, is Canada, U.S., and the OECD countries, has to spend a lot more and pay a lot more attention to cybersecurity for their entire system, whether it's Carleton University or Queen's University or McMaster University or uh, the bus system in in Hamilton or the city of Hamilton, doesn't matter. They don't discriminate saying, oh, well, you know, you're a government, so you're nice people. We're going to leave you alone. In fact, I would say probably quite a few, uh, especially at the provincial municipal level, they're probably more vulnerable than the biggest corporations. The banks were onto this first. The Canadian banks spend, I have read, over a billion a year. The big six, Canada only, spends over a billion a year on cybersecurity. They wised up to this, oh my goodness, 10, 15 years ago, and they were starting to get taken. And they are some of the remote, most robust systems today in the world. But there's tons of mid-sized companies and mid-sized municipalities and, and transit systems and power authorities that are, you know, they're just they're they're just a, an accident waiting to happen. So who's
0: doing this? Who's doing this? Ian, is this other countries? Is it organized crime? Because again, this isn't uh, this isn't I, peanuts here.
4: I don't. I obviously don't know any of these people. They're not my friends. But, I mean, it's pretty clear. When you're talking hacking at this level, this is not your grade 10 hacker, notwithstanding the Hollywood movies, you know, a grade 8 or grade 10 hacker. This is organized crime. That are recruiting people that are really really sophisticated they're very IT sophisticated and um, yes the Chinese there's a lot of very good reports that the Chinese are doing it and the Russians are doing it but they 're doing it for geopolitical reasons they're not doing it to make some money for the for the government of Russia or the government mm. of China so we have to distinguish between state cyber um, um, uh, terrorism and versus this this kind we 're talking about and the motive here is plain old-fashioned money. The payoff is the bribe. We will let go of your system, we'll release it back to you if you pay us X millions on such a specified date to such a specified account somewhere, and clearly it's not in the United States or Canada, those accounts, they're offshore somewhere, in some place that can uh, the arm of Canadian or American law can't reach. So they are they're going after, in the private sector, cybersecurity criminals are doing this for money, to make money and get rich. Whereas in the state world of cyberterrorism, or whatever you want to call it, it's being done for um, geopolitical reasons because you know you're trying to destabilize a particular regime. I mean, yeah. Israel. It's been widely reported has done some very serious cyberterrorism against uh, is against Iran to prevent them from developing a nuclear bomb. So, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm my point that I'm making is you make, must make a sharp distinction between countries that are doing it for geopolitical strategic reasons versus when you hear of ransom notes, that's the private sector. And, yeah. and I mean by the private, that's private criminals. And they're doing that. I, I think it's very organized because you need a lot of uh, resources to set the network up, to get the hackers to be able to go in. These are very complex systems. The average person wouldn't have a clue or even to enter or how to start um. So these aren't people that have taken one course online in programming. These are people that probably have an electrical, a degree in electrical engineering or something very sophisticated, and then they've been uh, practicing their craft, if I can call it that, for for a considerable period of time.
0: Not doing it in the parents' basement. Uh, Ian no. Lee with us, associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, talking to uh, talking about cyber attacks similar to uh, which uh, just recently hit a U.S. pipeline and uh, ransomware upwards of $4 million. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well.